Well, glad you are here today. I see that so many of you have returned from your trips and vacations, so that now we're shoulder to shoulder and packed in here yet again. And we're glad for that. And if you're new here with us, we are in the very, very slow process of a building expansion. So bear with us over that time and we will have much more room for you in the, in the days ahead. Um, also important to, that we, if you are someone who regularly comes here, you consider us part of your church family. Uh, we'd love to be able to uh, get your picture and put it on the wall back there because as we continue to get bigger and bigger, we want to make sure that we continue to remember who we all are and get to know each other better. So uh, if you're interested in that, let us know. We would be happy to do that. We'd be able to take some pictures of it for you guys in, in that today and love for you to do that. Uh, where we're at is in Mark chapter 10. We've been moving through the gospel of Mark week after week. And uh, we've noted that we are in a section right now in Mark's gospel where he was teaching four difficult passages, four difficult topics. And if it were us, and you're talking about all the crowds that were coming to Jesus, I believe these are four topics that we would strenuously avoid at all costs. And yet it is interesting that Jesus is not about trying to appeal to the masses. He's not trying to gain crowds. He's not trying to make sure that he says things in a softer, kinder, gentler way to make sure more people come. As the crowds come to him, he continues to lay out for them, here is what it is to follow him. Here's what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. And in all four of these messages, you are seeing Jesus essentially laying out what it looks like to count the cost. In that first section that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, we saw Jesus saying that if you want to follow him, you need to make yourself a servant of all. You need to make yourself last if you're going to follow Jesus. And that's not a popular teaching, and that can send crowds away. When you say, guess what, it's not about you. You make yourself last, and you become a servant to follow Jesus. We looked at last time, the second thing he says is that if you want to be a disciple, you need to cut off any and everything that is a temptation to sin. A warning about hell. And the eternal punishment that lies ahead. So he says if your eye or your foot or your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Because it's better to go in lame or blind or without a hand than it is to go into eternal fire. And so that was his second message to them is the serious nature of sin. A concern to them that we need to do anything and everything to avoid temptations to sin. The third message then is in chapter 10, and it's as probably as popular as all the rest of them. Marriage. <laughs> and he now teaches them. You'll notice that the problem of marriage, as much as it seems like it can be a problem today, was just as much of a problem in the first century and was just as much of a problem in Old Testament times. You'll notice how it comes out in verse 1 that Jesus is now in the region of Judea. As we've seen in the Gospel of Mark now, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. This is his final time to go to Jerusalem. And so Mark is, is showing us his movements. He is now coming into Jerusalem. And now that he's returned to Jerusalem, we have all kinds of opponents who are trying to challenge and test and oppose Jesus. You see that here in verse 2. The Pharisees came up and in order to test him, 
ask this question. So this is not a legitimate question to Jesus. Hey, we have some concerns about what God teaches about marriage. And would you tell us all about that? Because we'd really like to know that this is opposition. We are going to test Jesus. We are going to challenge him and see what he says about it. And you'll notice this is the question that they ask. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? That's the big challenging question, which I suppose 2,000 years later is still the big challenging question that people ask. Is it lawful to divorce? Is divorce okay? Does God care? Does it really matter? And I think it is interesting the way that they ask that question because Even asking that question betrays their motivation. Not only does the text tell us that Jesus is being tested by them, but the question really shows that they are concerned about their own desires and their own rights. It could have been a question that said, Jesus, teach us about marriage. And that would be a challenging test. All right, what is he going to say? But no, that's not what they do. They say, so... Can we divorce for any reason? Is it lawful divorce? Is that all right? Because that's what we want. (laughs) That's what we want you to say. Validate us in in this. And notice how Jesus responds to that in verse 3 by just simply saying, What did Moses command you? What did Moses command you? And if there's ever a question that ever comes up in our minds or concerns that we have, spiritual questions that would arise... The answer that we need to then immediately chase that question with is a consideration of what did God say? What do the scriptures say? And it's interesting that Jesus does that. Immediately he turns and says, so what did Moses command about them? And that's what we need to ask. What does God say about this? It's not for them to go, well, what do you think you would like it to mean? It's not about what we want God to say. It's not about what we think that seems right, fair, just, or good. What does God say? And that's immediately where Jesus is at. Jesus does not just simply give an answer. He challenges back and says, what did God say about that? What did Moses command you about this? And their response is interesting because they say in verse 4 that Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Think about the question and think about the answer. They ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce? Jesus says, what did Moses command? And they say, well, Moses said that we could give a certificate of divorce. Did Moses command divorce? (laughs) It's interesting what Jesus is doing in the way that he is asking this back to them. What did Jesus command or what did Moses command you about divorce? And he didn't command anything about divorce. Now what they're doing is quoting from Deuteronomy 24 and if I had 45 more minutes, I won't say 30, 45 more minutes to do Deuteronomy 24. I would go through Deuteronomy 24 with you. But if you're in Sunday night with us, I'm going to start through Deuteronomy. So in about seven years, I'll be at Deuteronomy 24. And uh, we will go through that chapter line line by by line. It's Casey's fault. He's taking on my... No, I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) 
But we'll eventually get to that. But that's their response. That's the thing that they, they say is, well, Moses said that if you look at Deuteronomy 24, though, that's not either a command, nor is it any kind of allowance whatsoever. In Deuteronomy 24, there's not a command to divorce, and it does not even give a legitimate reason for a divorce. All that you have in Deuteronomy 24 in those first four verses is if you divorced a woman and she went and married another person and then got divorced there, you can't have her back. There's no legislation of, yes, it's okay to divorce. But you'll notice that's the way the Pharisees have worded this. Well, Moses said it's fine. Moses says it's okay. And here Jesus is going to show them that that's not the case at all. That's not at all what Moses taught. Moses did not give a command that said, you go ahead and divorce for any reason. All divorce is fine. Just make sure you file the paperwork properly, certificate of divorce, and everything's fine. They're misusing Deuteronomy 24 completely. And so that's what you'll notice that Jesus does there in in, in verse 5. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of create, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Here, I think it is so interesting how Jesus responds to that. Jesus says, Moses said those words there because of your sinfulness. (laughs) Ever think about it like that? The whole reason that law was declared right there, the whole reason Deuteronomy 24 exists is because it was attempting to curtail the evil you were committing. That's an interesting picture. Because of your hardness of heart. I want you to think about it for a minute. How many times does God change his laws because the people don't want to do what he says? You know, you're strolling along through the scriptures and nobody wants to do what God says. And God goes, you know what? I'm sorry that you didn't like my laws. Let me change that and make that a little bit easier for you. And I know that was complicated. I know you didn't like it. (laughs) If you've read any of the scriptures long enough, you know, God does not do that. When Jesus speaks of the hardness of heart, I don't believe what Jesus is saying was, well, because you guys were so stubborn toward God that God then gave you this allowance and that's why he did that. The idea of the hardness of heart is their hardness and sinfulness toward one another, not about this relationship toward God, but what you are doing toward each other. You are being so sinful to one another, so hard-hearted, This law was put into effect. If you divorce your wife, you're not going to just go take her back and say, oh boy, I really miss her. I think I made a mistake. I think I'll, you know, we'll just all trade our wives for a while until we try to find the right one. He says, no, that's not what God's law was about. That's not what God's intention was about. And I want us to think about that idea of hardness of heart for a moment. Such an interesting description. It's such an interesting picture that he gives. Isn't it a shame that often the greatest hardness of heart is often displayed in marriage? And you think about how dark, stubborn, and hard our hearts can be toward people. 
that the very people that we are told that we're supposed to love and respect and, and be with for all of our days can be the ones that we have the hardest heart toward. That we can be the most ruthless toward. And here's what Jesus is describing is Moses comes in with this law by God because you were being so sinful. You were so terrible in what you were doing. That's a a sad reflection on often what really does happen in marriage. And so Jesus then lays that out and describes how that should not be the case. Because of your hardness of heart, verse 5, He wrote you this commandment. And now He expresses God's marriage law. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, verse 6. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Here is God's marriage law. And notice it's the marriage law that is declared from the very beginning. He says, from the beginning it wasn't so. Here's how God made it at creation. Here's the very beginning. And he notice that he starts off with, God made them male and female. I never would have thought in my preaching career I would have to say this, but here we are in 2019. There's only two options and not more. He makes you male or he makes you female. And that's all the choices there. God makes you one or he makes you the other. Important to see from the very beginning, this is the way it is. God makes you either male or he makes you female. And that's the beginning point of what creation is all about. From the very beginning, we have Adam and Eve, male and female. And then he goes a little bit further and says, And man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Definition of marriage. One man and one woman for life. There's God's definition. And he is the joiner of marriage, as Jesus is going to talk about in just a moment. Marriage is between a man and a woman. That is how God defined it. We can come along all we want to in modern times and try to change all kinds of things about gender and marriage and redefine everything, but that is not God's law nor God's way. And I believe that is intuitively wired into us, that truth. And God expressly says it here, is that man and woman were made and the two were to become one. And in describing the two becoming one, it is important to note that that is a a beautiful picture of what marriage is supposed to look like. It's a beautiful picture of what marriage should be. Is that this is supposed to be two individuals, a man and a woman, who are coming together and are joining their lives and unifying their lives in such a degree, to such an extent, that it is pictured that they are now one. Too often in our world today, I think marriage is pictured as uh, when I was in accounting, you would have basically two corporations and it was called like the pooling of assets. The two corporations were now joined together, but they operated completely separate entities altogether. It was just a pooling of assets together, but they functioned completely on their own. 
And marriage is not supposed to look like that. Marriage is not, okay, well, we're under this marriage banner, but we still live two completely distinct and separate lives, and we've just pooled our assets. (laughs) We've just pooled our money. We've pooled our homes. But I do what I want to do, and she does what she wants to do, and I take my vacation, she takes her vacations, and we do our own separate things. That's not the definition of marriage. Marriage is the joining together so that the two become one. They are so unified together that they are functioning as if they are one. It's a beautiful picture of what marriage is supposed to be. And also defined within that is sexual relations within marriage and the idea of two becoming one. We should not downgrade the idea of the two becoming one as only sexual union. It is far more than that. But we shouldn't neglect the idea that that's where that belongs. Sexual relations belong in marriage where the two become one flesh. This is God's definition of marriage. I think this is important in a world that seems so confused by this. And I want us to see what Jesus then really does with this as he draws his important conclusion in verse 9. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. What God has joined together, let no one separate. I don't know if anybody thinks about marriage like this anymore, that God is the joiner of the two. God is very much left out of the equation in marriage. And here is God saying, I rule over marriage. I instituted marriage and I am the joiner in marriage. And here Jesus even says, what God has joined together. Not what two people have joined together. That's not it. What God has joined together, then we should not separate. Here's Jesus' big point. We have no right to sever what God has joined. We have absolutely no right to sever what God has joined. Too often in marriage... There can be such a focus on what can I do to get out of this marriage? What are some ways I can get out of this mess? And I want you to notice that that is not the picture that Jesus gives when the Pharisees come to test Jesus and they ask him, so is it lawful to divorce? What is Jesus answer? No. His outright answer is no. What God has joined together, people are not to separate. That is His clear answer. And I believe that was the intention that what Jesus was trying to get these Pharisees to understand. When they asked the question, He says, What did Moses command? Did Moses command divorce? No. (laughs) We're supposed to answer that. When He said, What did Moses command? They should have said, Moses didn't command divorce. And He would have been, Yeah, that's right. He didn't. (laughs) But instead, they've no, we've got all kinds of ways that we can get out of this. So Jesus says, well, let me teach you something. Let me take you back to God's marriage law. From the very beginning, here's the way it was. And friends, it's still the same today. You're not going to go anywhere past the Gospel of Mark and find some kind of different teaching that for 2019 is going to change what we're learning right here. The answer that God gives in regards to divorce, is very simple. Don't do it. That what God has joined together, we're not supposed to separate. I think that's important that we would enter marriage and realize marriage in that, in that picture. 
Marriage is supposed to be for life. And I want us to consider this angle for a minute because I don't know that we always think about it like this. Why does God care so much? Right? I think that sometimes often the big deal that people put on this. Well, what's the big deal? What does it matter if we divorce? What does it matter if we marry other people? What's the, what's the big deal? Why does God care? You know, the God, the cosmic killjoy who just won't let us do what we want to do. Why, why does God care? Because so often that's the presentation of man. Well, why does he care? What does it matter? And I want just for you to consider why it might matter in an extremely important way is what you see what Paul teaches in Ephesians 5 verse 31 where he uses this very same place of Genesis. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Have you ever thought about that? (laughs) It's an interesting line right there. You read that and go... No, that's referring to Adam and Eve and marriage man and woman. And Paul goes, no, this is a really interesting picture. This is a really interesting mystery, if you will, that I'm about to explore for you. He says, the man leaves father and mother, hold fast to his wife, to become one flesh. It refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Why does it matter so much? Because our marriages are supposed to reflect the relationship of Christ and the church. That's why it matters so much. We're supposed to be reflecting the beauty of what we see in the Christ church relationship. The beautiful self-sacrificing nature of Christ for the body, the church. The beautiful self-sacrificing submission of the church to Christ. There's a beauty that's in what Christ has done for us. And he says there's supposed to be a physical model of that in this world. Our marriages are supposed to look like that. That we'd be reflecting the love of God in the marriage relationship. That people would see that. And how we relate in our, in our marriages. What that looks like with husband and wife it is a big deal. It's not just simply God's random laws, but to put a higher calling upon marriage that we would look at it and go that we are reflecting something to the world. We are showing something. And perhaps there's no greater time in at least our culture and our country's history where we can really reflect a good Christian, loving, submissive, respecting marriage than right now when it feels like nobody does that. (laughs) What a time when we can go, hey, this is what the love of Christ looks like. It seems like almost every, uh, you know, I catch the Sunday news as I'm getting ready because the TV's on and I'm passing by and they had like something this morning about a couple that had been had celebrated their 76th year of marriage. And it's interesting because the media just goes, ah, that's just impossible that you could ever make it so long. And it's sad. 
And the world could use Christian families reflecting that undying, self-sacrificing love in marriage all over the globe. That's what we need to be doing. Mystery is profound. I say it refers to Christ in the church. It's a beautiful picture of what marriage is supposed to look like in our lives. Verse 10. And in the house, the disciples asked him about this matter. You have to love that in Mark's gospel. Every time Jesus teaches something and the disciples go, now wait a minute, I need some understanding about that. Give me some clarification about that. I'm trying to understand what you said right there. That was really tough. And please note, every time Jesus says something like this, He says it and walks away. He's done with the crowds. He just went in the house. He just dropped that right there. Uh, The Pharisees say, we can divorce for any reason. He says, no, you can't. What God's joined together, let no one separate. Walks in the house and closes the door. (laughs) The crowd be like, woo. (laughs) Okay. And the disciples go, uh, verse 11. Uh, they ask about this matter, and he says to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Big teaching. Very simple. Divorce and remarriage is not only contrary to God's law, which is he just said, what God's joined together, we're not supposed to separate. God's put them together. Divorce is not supposed to happen. And then he describes it even further and says, by divorcing and remarrying, you're committing adultery. That's verse 11 and verse 12. So you can imagine disciples asking him, well, what? What? I don't understand. He goes, well, let me help you understand. The first marriage is permanent because God joined it. Therefore, if you remarry, you're committing adultery. Pretty straightforward. (laughs) That's what he's explaining. You are joined for life in that marriage. Now, Mark doesn't have it, and I'm going to talk about that in just a minute, but let's talk about a rare exception for a moment. Because of our sinfulness, there appears to be a a, a rare exception that's given, which which is found in Matthew's Gospel, where Matthew says, I say to you that whoever divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. We see in the New Testament that sexual immorality breaks the marriage covenant. Clearly stated there twice in Matthew. Matthew 19, as well as as Matthew 5. So sexual immorality is this one supposed to be rare exception by which then remarriage would then be lawful. But I think it's important to ask this because so often I think it comes up. So why doesn't Mark have that? It's interesting that Mark doesn't say, Luke doesn't say, and only Matthew says that. Why would they not include those things? I think for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's implied. It's implied on a lot of levels. It's implied by the fact of Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, you have God saying, two are supposed to become one flesh. By definition, then, if a third party enters into this, we've broken this. This is the two becoming one and staying one all their days, as long as they live. There's an implication, then, that if anybody else is involved in this, That then is unfaithfulness and is unacceptable. That's also proven in the way God dealt with Israel, if you think about it. 
How did God show that over and over again, like in the prophets, like Hosea? What is God always calling the sin of Israel when they go to other idols and they start worshiping other gods? Adultery. It's interesting. It's just implied. Is if you are not completely devoted to me, you've committed adultery. You're with somebody else. You've given your life to someone else. It was implied in, in those very days. The other reason I think that Mark may not have this 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 picture, this exception, is I think because of somewhat probably what was going on in that day and time, and it certainly goes on in our day and time. Is what we have the tendency to do is we tend to bypass God's marriage law and we try to get the exception to be as big as possible. Let's get the exception really, really large so that just about anything that we do or anything that our spouse does could possibly fall into the category. So let's, you know, broaden it out and broaden it out. And we talked about how the Pharisees' question betrayed the very idea of divorce. That's what they want. Is it lawful to divorce? The implied idea is, yeah, we want to hear you say yes. We can get a divorce for any reason. And what Jesus is doing is moving marriage back to what it's supposed to be. Is there supposed to be a divorce? No. That's the way marriage is to be looked at. Marriage is not to be entered with, well, I've got these escape clauses built in place, some ways that I might be able to get out of it. That's not what marriage is supposed to look like. Marriage is to be one man, one woman for life, and everybody goes into it exactly in that way. Marriage would be for life. Marriage should not be entered into, now let me see what are the ways that I can jump out of this, It's supposed to be, this is the way it will always be. I think that's why you have Mark and Luke just state it flat out. Because the powerful message of what Jesus is trying to get across to us is that we're not supposed to divorce. He wants us to see the beautiful nature of marriage. He wants us to see the beauty of what God has given us. I mean, what an idea. God God did not have to do that. God could have made us have to live completely individual, separate lives. And every day you would go home and it would just be you and there'd be no such thing as a companion or or children. You just, you know, it's just you, you know, and God would just start putting people on the planet by his own will, like Adam and Eve, just, okay, we need some more people. There's a beautiful thing that God has done by saying companionship and family. God has created that and that we would see marriage in that beautiful way and see the hardness of heart and sinfulness that leads to divorce. We should look at divorce in that light because marriage is supposed to be a reflection of God's relationship with us. That's what that's supposed to look like. That's the beauty of what God has done is that we would be reflecting that. In our day and time, I think we have to be all the more vigilant and all the more aware and all the more careful in our actions and in our words that the idea of divorce would never cross our mind. Divorce is not the plan, not even on the table, and not part of our vocabulary. It shouldn't be a word that a spouse would even say to the other. Because God says, what I've joined, we don't separate. 
So once we're in marriage, that's it. No divorce. And we don't threaten that. We don't talk about it. We don't plan for it. We don't aim for it. We don't hope for it. We don't do any of those kinds of things. It is simply then a picture of our willingness to be devoted together for the rest of our lives. And I think when Jesus would say for us then that we need to recognize that divorce then is ultimately a tragedy and a sadness if it happens. It's not God's purpose. It's not God's plan. It's not the way it should be. It should be in our hearts and in our minds a devastation that something like that would occur. Even if it's for the exception of sexual immorality, that's still a devastation. That's still not what God had wanted. And it is only because of sinfulness that that happened. And ultimately, I think in our day and time, one of the things, if you want to talk about the four million pet peeves I might have, this is certainly one of them, how people talk about, well, it'd be better for the family if we divorce. It's better for the kids if we divorce. It's better for the fill in the blank that we divorce. And I submit to you, absolutely not. God does not say anywhere that it's better to go ahead and get a divorce because you can't agree or because you fight all the time or you always slam doors or whatever it is. He never says that. We come along with that. God says don't divorce. And so often what we do is we try to figure out a justification when the only justification is sexual immorality. Infidelity is the only reason that God gives because that is a breaking of the covenant that God has joined together. I want to end then with three scenarios because, well, I hope you're not in one of these three scenarios, but you may be in one of these three scenarios. (laughs) Number one, what do I do if I'm in an unlawful marriage? Okay, so you studied this and it's very plain. You're not supposed to divorce. And the only reason you're supposed to divorce is for sexual immorality. And I hope you'll just let what God said here weigh on your heart. And I hope you'll just keep reading that text. And let it rest in your mind and rest in your heart exactly what God has said. And you begin to consider what do you need to do in regards to that situation. It's important to remember what the New Testament tells us over and over again. We can't just continue in sin and think that grace abounds. We can't continue to live our lives doing whatever we want to do and think that we're going to be okay before God. Nor can we think that we can deliberately sin and think there's a sacrifice for sins. There's not. We can't just go before God and say, I'm going to do whatever I want to do and God's going to be okay with that. And so we need to consider what repentance would look like. Dan and I and many others here are here to help you in trying to figure that out. What What would your repentance look like if you're in that condition? We'd be happy to meet with you and talk with you about that. I want to tie to the prior context for all three of these questions. Remember what the last paragraph was about? Hell's not worth it. Isn't that interesting? That's the last paragraph. Whatever causes you to sin, you're supposed to cut it off. And we need to be very careful that what we're not doing is saying, well, I'm going to take my chances with a marriage that I know that is not lawful before God, that I didn't do what God said right here, and be unwilling to make changes. What if I'm in a bad marriage? I hope you're not. I hope you don't think of it like that. But let's suppose you're in a bad marriage. 
I want us to recognize as well that happiness is not a justification for divorce. Put this in the other four million pet peeves. But God wants me to be happy. God wants you to be happy in eternity. And sometimes that means a lot of sacrifices in this life. And it means a lot of hard choices in this life. Sometimes that means going through a lot of difficulties in this life. But I would encourage you to look for ways to become happy in the marriage you're in. God has joined you together and we're not supposed to separate that. Look for ways to be happy in the marriage you are in. I would submit to you that nothing is hopeless. And so often the thing that I I, I see that happens is what happens happens is well this person does something and then I do something so because I did something they do something and they did something so I did something and I did something and they did something and I did you can't change the other person you only can change you and I submit to you that somebody's got to got to stop the chain of madness because that's what happens well they did something yeah, and they'd probably say because you did something. And then they'd say because you did something, then you did something because they did something. So who's going to stop this? Somebody's got to be willing to step up and say, I'm not going to do that anymore. We can't change the other person, but we can change ourselves and we can consider what we've done to damage the marriage and what we can do to try again and to try to fix it and try to do what is right by the marriage. You have your whole life in marriage what God's joined together don't separate you got plenty of time to work on it plenty of time to fix it plenty of time to start fresh and try again and I would also encourage you in this that our hope is not supposed to be in marriage what I mean by that is a marriage can't bear the weight of the Cinderella story you know My life was horrible and terrible until this great prince or princess came along and completely waved their magic wand over my life and was supposed to make everything better and we would all live happily ever after and we would never fight, argue, disagree or have any issues whatsoever and all the kids came out perfectly and they always said yes sir and yes ma'am and always cleaned up their rooms and did the dishes. It's not how it works. Something interesting about marriage is that in and of itself, it changes us to become what we're supposed to be. And I think it's important for us to recognize that maybe we are going through the difficulty that we are going through so that we would rely more on God and less on our marriage. You know, we put all of our hopes and dreams on another person. And there's only one person that will never let you down. That's only God. Everybody else is going to let you down. Even your spouse and your kids and your parents and your friends. Only God won't let you down. Put your hope on that. Don't put your hope on other people. And to realize that it's human selfishness that is always the cause, directly or indirectly, for marital discord. We're not being like Christ has called us to be. We're thinking about ourselves, not what God called us to be. I'll give you the same thing of that paragraph, hell's not worth it. Coexistence is not the picture of marriage. Two individuals under the same house living completely different lives is not the picture of marriage. It's supposed to be a reflection of Christ and the church. Finally, what should I do if I'm not married? 
Number one, please understand the permanence of marriage before you get married. We live in a day right now that just treats marriage like Kleenex. You know, when you're done with one, go on to the next. No big deal. Marriage is not that. Marriage is for life. It is very serious. And so be careful in who you choose and prepare to be with them with all of the good and all of the bad, with all of the things you love and all the things you hate. I remember my dad who's here today told me this uh, many, many years ago. Anything, you're single right now, anything that bothers you right now will only exponentially bother you more when you're married. (laughs) Realize that. It's not going to get better. (laughs) It's still going to be there. You're choosing to love the person in spite of all of that. That's what you're saying in marriage. And if you're single, you're not married, realize sexual relations with someone you are not married with is sexual immorality. We live in a time right now that acts like sexual immorality is fine. Sleep around, do whatever. That's not against, that is against God's law. That's not God's intention. Marriage is a place for sexual relations, and I'll say it for the third, for third time now, hell's not worth that either. Make the sacrifice, and what Jesus is doing with this is challenging us. Count the cost. Are you willing to follow Jesus? Even through singleness, even through marriage and loss, even through marriage and trials, even through marriage and difficulties, are you willing to count the cost? And be what God has called you to be as a husband and as a wife. It's an important calling. And I hope that we would realize that we can be reflections to the world of the love of Christ to us. What a beautiful thing that we can display to the world if we would just do that. We're going to sing an invitation song. As we we sing this invitation song, I would like for you to consider a couple of things. Number one. Where is your relationship with God? Are you willing to count the cost and do whatever it takes to follow Him and serve Him? A realization that eternity with God is worth it and eternity of punishment is not worth it. The sacrifices are worth it. The changes that we make are worth it. The trials that we go through, the suffering that we may endure, the things that happen to us, even in relationships like marriage, are worth what we will be enjoying in eternity. If your situation is that of which that you're not sure in regards to your marriage that you fall into some of those categories, say, I've got a bad marriage and I don't know what to do, or I think I didn't have a right reason for marriage. This is not us moving you out the door, but begging for you to come talk to us so that we can help you and make the right decisions of what you need to do to be a follower of Jesus. I think all of us recognize that marriages are complicated and things are not always as simple as they seem. And we want to help you navigate through those decisions so that you can repent of your sins and be a true follower of Jesus. Is there any way we can help you in that? If you are not following him as you are, would you turn away from your sins, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, confessing Jesus to be the Son of God who died for you. We'd love for you to come and do that now while we stand and while we sing.